I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanny. This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner. Jonathan strikes again. She's on a hat-trick. She comes at Molyneux. Cates is taken by Perry. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup title in front of a magical crowd at the MCG. Welcome back to The Scoop. We are the cricket podcast dedicated to the women's game. Now, the waiting game continues till we see these amazing female cricketers back on the field with Cricket Australia this week confirming further delays to the start of the WNCL. Yeah, um, not the news we wanted to hear, but kind of had a feeling it might happen with continued border closures. We've had the opening round of matches pushed back for a third time now. The good news is it's only five days and the season is now set to start on January 30th. So fingers crossed that that does go ahead as planned now. Yeah, definitely fingers crossed. We assume it's been a, a pretty frustrating time for the players who haven't haven't played at the elite level since the WBBL wrapped up in late November. But yeah, as you said, LJ, fingers crossed with borders opening, uh, we can get under, underway on January 30. Yes, and with the Tour of New Zealand coming up in March and April and, of course, a World Cup in 2022, not to mention an Ashes, the players are going to be itching to get back out there and show what they can do to impress the national selectors. Absolutely. And our guest this week on The Scoop is an absolute cracker. It literally doesn't get much better than this. So we're lucky enough to be chatting to Belinda Clark, who is an absolute giant of the game. She is. It's hard to overstate the impact Belinda Clark has had on cricket in Australia. She had an incredibly important playing career from 1991 to 2005, winning two World Cups along the way. Belinda was also the first ever cricketer, male or female, to hit a double century in a one-day international. Belinda's also had an immense impact on the game away from the field. So during her playing career, Belinda was the CEO of Women's Cricket Australia and led the charge to merge with Cricket Australia in 2003. Belinda then commenced work at Cricket Australia, where she rose to AGM of community cricket to essentially revolutionise the way junior cricket is played in this country. Belinda recently finished up at Cricket Australia to pursue her own business, The Leadership Playground, where she aims to inspire young girls to step into leadership. Enjoy listening to one of the most important figures in Australian cricket, Belinda Clark. (music) 
As we've already mentioned, today's guest is an absolute cracker, Belinda Clark, one of Australia's best ever players, a giant of Australian cricket, and the most important figure in the women's game in Australia. Belinda, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on The Scoop today. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you for the invite. It's been a great to listen to some of your episodes, so I'm, uh, I'm wrapped to be able to, uh, to talk to you. Um, there's so much to cover off from your time as captain of the Australian team, being CEO of Women's Cricket Australia, as well as your time with Cricket Australia. With, as well as your time with Cricket Australia. But the first thing we want to ask you as someone who's dedicated so much time to the game of cricket, what is it about cricket that you, you love the most? Uh, I think um, there's probably two things. One is the, uh, the teamwork and the people you play with. I think that's probably what makes you keep coming back. Uh, so that, that's probably one thing. And the second thing was, is just simply the joy of hitting a cricket ball in the middle of a cricket bat um, is really it's just really fun to be able to do and uh you know it's sort of addictive once you've done it once you want to keep going back for more so one's a physical skill and one's probably an emotional or a connection with other people and belinda you yourself have spent a lot of time in the in the grassroots cricket community with with clubs and and junior cricketers around australia but what was your junior cricket experience like as a kid growing up in newcastle well, I play, we travelled around a bit when I was a kid. We landed in Newcastle when I was about six, I think, um, and I just loved playing in the backyard. Um, I thought most of my cricket would always be trapped in the backyard because I didn't realise that women played or girls played. Uh, and then um, in high school, year eight at high school, I, um, I branched out from tennis, which I was playing from a, a young age, and I started to play hockey and cricket and indoor cricket and all sorts of other things. And that was really the beginning. I was just lucky my school had a, a cricket team. Um, I played in that team. I played for the region team. I played for the state team, all sort of within a couple of weeks. And I ended up playing in a, in a junior boys team um, just to get some practice before um, a, a, a national title. And so you made your debut for Australia in 1991 in Hobart. Um, what do you remember about finding out you've been selected in the Australian team and about that, that first game? Well, back in the golden days, um, we used to just play a, a two-week tournament for, for your state. So the National League didn't come into existence until 95, 96, I think. So I played for um, New South Wales in 1991 in the senior team. And we had two weeks away. We were playing a tournament in Orange. And at the end of the tournament, they'd, everyone would be there for a big final dinner and they'd just simply call up you know, 13 names of people that were uh, selected to play for Australia. And you, that 13 stayed on as a group. We then drove to Sydney um, and then flew into, um, into Hobart. But um, it was pack your bags and I had no thought that I would actually be picked in a, in a national team and I wasn't prepared to then go to Hobart. I'd packed for Orange for two weeks and I ended up being away for, you know, six or seven weeks and it was just um, amazing fun and the, the, um, the, the people that I played with were, um, you know, legends of the game, ultimately. They, Christina Matthews and Belinda Haggart and Zoe Goss, and uh, it was just a real thrill. Yeah, I mean, we often hear about the current golden era of women's cricket in Australia, you know, with Perry, Healy, Lanning, but you yourself played in a golden era, you know, alongside names like Fitzpatrick, Rolton, Kitely, Matthews, Goss, just to name a few. So what was the what was the culture of the team like back then and what was it like playing alongside some of those some of those names that I've mentioned? Uh, look, I, I played for, I think, 14, 14 years. I think I played in the national team and um, always through that, that entire time, the standards were very high. Um, there was an expectation that you played your best um, and there was an expectation that most times you'd win. Um, and I was very lucky to have, you know, been brought into teams that were reasonably strong 
uh, because that allowed me to play my game um, and not be too worried about the situation around me. And, and I think um, that's the gift of, of starting a career in a, in a strong team. But uh, yeah, I mean, very competitive, um, you know, super conscious of, um, you know, the, the impact on trying to get other girls to play. That's been a, a consistent all the way through uh, and making sure that, you know, you look after your teammates. So um, people do that in different ways, in different eras, but that's a pretty strong um, thread that runs through everything. And we've seen these days the Australian players now are lucky enough to have full-time contracts and it's very different. Um, back when you were playing, what how did it work for you guys and did you have to balance work with, with playing cricket for Australia? Well, I thought I was one of the lucky ones because uh, in 19, I had to pay to play for Australia, but only for half my career. So... Uh, we get a, a dreaded invoice at the end of a tour, um, anywhere between a thousand bucks and a couple of thousand dollars. So um, to to play, and then in 1997, um, 97-98, I think it was, the Combank came on board. Um, the integration with Cricket Australia was then in 2001. So from from 97-98, I, I no longer had to to pay. Uh, to play so I thought I was in the lucky bucket but um, uh, time moves forward and, and now now the girls are uh, remunerated um, well for, for what they do so it was juggling work either university or work and making sure you could be available for that next tour. What, what did you used to do with your time did you have another job outside of cricket? I had a lot of jobs outside of cricket so um, I studied physiotherapy so I moved from Newcastle to Sydney um, primarily to uh, play cricket because that's where the cricket was. And so I just picked a course that wasn't available in Newcastle but was available in Sydney, which ended up being physio. So I did that. Uh, and then I worked as a physio for uh, just under two years. Um, I was based at the Illawarra Area Health Service and I um, part of that was living in Sydney, part of it was living in Wollongong. I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'd drive down, um, I'd work for the day, I'd train at lunchtime, I'd drive home. Um, I'd train at night and then go to bed about nine, 10 o'clock and get up and do it again. So uh, that takes its toll after a while. Um, so I ended up on an overseas holiday for three months, just touring the world and um, got back just before a camp, reasonably unfit and no job, no money. Uh, so I started working as a cricket development officer and um, uh, that was basically the entree into cricket administration. Did it ever deter you from playing the game that you love, like the challenge of balancing everything? No, not really. It, it probably altered my career path um, from a you know professional sense, but uh, no, I just loved it. I, I couldn't get enough of it. So um, I was advocating for more cricket to be played. I was advocating for um, better rights for the for the players, um, and and most of that was around letting us play more cricket um, and uh, facilitating that. So yeah, it was good good fun. I wouldn't change it. For anything, I've met some great people and they're still good friends today. Now, we wanted to talk about the 1997 World Cup, which is a tour that we've we've heard quite a lot about. So it was your first World Cup as captain and the first time I think a lot of you went to India. So do you have any particularly strong memories of that tour and the teammates that came along with you? Uh, I do. It was um, it was one of the, the fun... It, it was probably a tour that had the most fun and laughs in it, but at the time it also had lots of frustrations and challenges in it, which I think provided the humour, but some of the humour came at the time and some of the humour was um, able to reflect back on it actually wasn't funny at the time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was just an amazing experience. Um, we uh, we travelled around India on aeroplanes. Um, I reckon we went to about nine or ten different places. Uh, we traversed the country um, and we got to see India in all, all its glory. Um, we stayed from 
you know, five-star hotels um, to uh, rooms around the outside of a tennis centre in Delhi. So the whole spectrum um, from, you know, very fancy to um, rubbish. Uh, and uh, it was just good fun. And we played really good cricket, um, got great memories of it. And it's probably the, the thing that sort of at uh, 27 I was at that point, it changed my view of what the world was, actually was having. That was the first time I'd been uh, into a, a country like that. And before there were 86,000 at the MCG last year, there were, I think, 80-odd thousand at Eden Gardens for the 97 World Cup final. Um, what was that day like? It was just surreal. I remember the day before training in the afternoon um, and we were doing a lap of the ground and Karen Rolton uh, was was um, generally at the back of the pack doing the lap, the warm-up lap. So I sort of shimmied back to the back of the pack and, and Rolly was talking about that she'd heard a whisper there was going to be a big crowd tomorrow. Um, and I was like, don't worry about it, Rolly. That may or may not happen, but we, we've got a game to win. And she goes, no, but what if there's a lot of people that come and watch us? And I said, yeah, that'll be, that'll be fine, but um, I don't think we need to worry about that. And then as the day went on, um, the following day, the crowd just built up and built up and built up. And at the end of the day, uh, there were so many people there, I could not believe it. Um, it's just a, a surreal event and, yeah, good fun. But um, as a player, you don't really appreciate um, you, because you, you're trained to block stuff out, sitting in the grandstand at watching um, the World T20 final with 86,000 people, you don't have to block anything out. You can sort of, you know, sap it in. So but two totally different experiences. Um, I enjoyed both of them immensely, but totally different perspectives. Do you often catch up with like the likes of Karen Rolton and Fitzy and all the teammates that you play with to sort of reflect on your achievements and just chat about what you guys sort of did back in the day? Uh, catch up with people, um, you know, various people, depending on where they're based. I mean, we're running into each other, those that, particularly those that are still involved in the game. Um, generally not reflecting on successes, generally reflecting on, you know, stupid things that happened or hanging, hanging it on each other. Um, so we don't, we're generally not talking about success rates or tour wins or anything. We're talking about that day that so-and-so did whatever. Um, and that's what, uh, that's what probably what binds us together. But yeah, very, very, very special part of our lives. And we, we spent a lot of time um, sitting on the sideline with each other, training with each other. So you get to know each other pretty well. And so you were the Australian captain from 1995 until your retirement in 2005. What was your captaining style like? And for those of us who will never be national captains, what are some of the challenges and what do you, what do you need to be to be successful in that role? Uh, well, I was, um, I captained New South Wales senior team in uh, 94, I think it was. And that same year, I was captain of the national team, appointed captain of the national team. Um, so totally inexperienced. Uh, I had literally six games of cricket captaining under my belt. I was captain of my club team at that point. Um, Learn a lot from Chris Matthews, who was in, in my club team and also in, in state teams I played in. Uh, so essentially, it was about um, follow your gut, um, put yourselves in the opposition shoes and see what you'd, you'd think they'd be doing or thinking, um, try and do the opposite of what they'd want. Uh, and then bit by bit, I probably learnt a little bit more about, um, you know, sort of tactical work, um, managing people. That's probably the thing that's that's most difficult. Um, and it's not just people in the team, but the people around the team and people that want a piece of the team. Um, that That's probably the skill set that um, evolved. I think the tactical now, um, it, it's just a slow burn and, and you learn off many people around you. And as well as your duties as captain, you were CEO of Women's Cricket Australia, the governing body 
um, back then before the merger. Um, can you tell us a bit about how the merger with the Australian Cricket Board came about and how that changed the game? Yeah, so um, we had a, a very progressive president at the time in um, Dame Quentin Bryce and uh, Rena Hall was her vice president and Rena's now um, CEO of the Bradman Foundation. So Rena had the cricket nows and Quentin had the, the nows around how to influence change. Um, Malcolm Speed was CEO of the Australian Cricket Board and there was a really big push to try from Australian Sports Commission to try and merge sports together so that the concept of a men's and a women's sport needed, you know, they needed to come together and be one national organisation. So there was pressure from um, the Sports Commission. Um, the Women's Association knew that this was the only way really to grow the game um, completely. And so it just started a process of negotiations and talking and I just describe it as it's almost like, you know, big, big brother, um, you know, 21 year old brother um, bringing a five year old sister in and looking after her, you know, in a house, because that that was the difference in size and of um, maturity of the two organisations. And bit by bit, um, they've become, you know, two 30 or 40 year olds living together in a house, whereas it started off as a very unbalanced um, you know, power base. And, and now if you look at the influence the teams have, um, it's totally different. And, you know, we knew that was going to take time. Um, but it was worth the journey. Was there much resistance at the time? Oh, there's always resistance to change. Um, there was resistance within the men's game. Um, you know, they were worried about, you know, fund, having to fund something that wasn't going to be profitable. There was resistance within the women's game about giving up control um, and, you know, losing self-determination. And bit by bit, we just worked our way through that and, and we ended up just doing a two-year trial to allay everyone's fears and give everyone the, uh, the, you know, the safety cord to get out of jail if they needed to. And at the end of the day, uh, in 2003, it was rubber, rubber stamped as the way forward. And, and here we are today. Um, you know, you think if you hadn't have done it, um, you know, what, what would have happened? Probably nothing. You probably would be, you probably only have boys playing the game. Lucky, lucky for you. And so your transition from your playing days to working at Cricket Australia, was that like just a natural progression? And was was it always something that you wanted to do, was work in cricket administration? Uh, well, I, I was doing it from a perspective that I needed a way to earn some money in the first instance. Mm -hmm. um, I was working in cricket as I was playing. So I was um, working with Women's Cricket Australia, working on the merger at the same time I was captain in country. So it was a little bit unusual um, to be in that situation. But again, I was just really well supported by people like Quentin and Malcolm Speed, who just gave me, you know, full support and great guidance to navigate my way through that. So I, I didn't really feel at any point that I was transitioning from anything because I was trying to do everything at once. Um, and it wasn't until I stopped playing in 2005 that that transition really came about, which was um, stop going to cricket training and start doing other things like going to the beach and enjoying enjoying some other things rather than um, just sitting around cricket fields. Yeah, back in back in 2005 when you started at Cricket Australia full-time, what were some of the things that you identified at that organisation that really, really needed changing? I was very lucky to get a, a view of the organisation um, uh, across all of the departments and I think it's probably something um, as I continued on I kept advocating for uh, you know, people moving around the organisation within departments between state and national body um, in different countries, because when you do that, you get a very different perspective on a problem. So I was super lucky to, I, I spent time, um, you know, in marketing meetings, in um, operations meetings, in the finance meetings. So I got to understand the business um, in its entirety, which was really helpful. Um, I think I've sat on every level of the building. I think I've almost probably sat at nearly every desk. Um, 
but just to, to, to find out what everyone was doing in their skill set was, was um, you know, a real eye-opener for someone who was a physiotherapist who was coming and trying to be a sports administrator. It was really helpful, grounding. Um, people like Anthony Everard were there, um, you know, people that have come, gone and come back to the organisation. So it's been, it's been wonderful to reunite with them. And when you look back over all your time at CA, um, are there any achievements that have happened across that time that please you the most? Uh, it's probably probably three things. Um, one is the T20 World Cup final. That's probably at the top of the top of the list. That was amazing. Took a lot of commitment from a lot of people to to bring that to fruition. Um, the second one is um, just changing the way that kids experience the game through um, the junior formats work and and the fact that that's now rolled out pretty much across the country. Um, I'm really proud of that. And the last one would be. Um, you know, the build of the National Cricket Centre in Brisbane. So going from being an all, almost an add-on to Queensland cricket to having a national centre that's the home of our national teams, um, doing something that I'd never done before uh, at that scale was, um, was quite remarkable. And that's a, a piece of property and, you know, where people can do some great work. So they're probably the three things I'm most proud of. An amazing legacy. And Belinda, if you had a, a message or a piece of advice for the, for the current leaders of Australian cricket, to drive the game forward, what what would it be? Uh, never forget, um, never forget who that kid was that just loved the game. You know that you were at five, six, seven. Um, that kid exists today in various shapes and sizes across the country. And if you do everything to honour that kid, um, you won't make too many mistakes. And um, when you look around the world at the moment, obviously Australia has been leading the way with its contracts for the women and. Um, even the talent development pathways that exist with the MPS and, and all of that. What do you think needs to happen worldwide to make sure the standard of the play game continues to grow all over the world, not just Australia getting further ahead? Yeah, so um, this is a really important point because um, an international game that's lopsided um, has a, um, a shelf life. So um, it's really important that everyone you know, jumps in behind it and, and does what they need to do from an international perspective to truly, truly, truly grow the game. Um, the only way to do it is to hold people accountable for the decisions they make and the funds they receive. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of what the world events have brought us, the Women's Championship, the World Cups, because it gives pinnacle events that people need to prepare for. They need to get the next layer of talent ready for. They need kids playing. So those events have really been... Um, you know, little punches in, in the time scale that have allowed um, every nation to attach to. Um, so we need to keep growing those. The T20 World Cup's critical. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's not good enough, uh, the amount of money in cricket, that, you know, females aren't afforded the opportunity in, in every country that, that plays the game. And, well, I know the Under-19 World Cup's probably going to have to be postponed because of COVID, but is introducing something like that another step in that process? Yeah, look, and I've been advocating for that for about 10 years. Um, and finally, we got it through at ICC level in the last strategic plan. Um, absolutely critical. Uh, it's a no-brainer for mine. And um, I'm disappointed it took took that long to, to come out. But look, we'll, we'll get there. Um, other sports do it. It works really well. And I think that'll be a wonderful event. And what we'll see is the emergence of a layer of talent that we just did not realise was there. And it'll come from places that we don't expect it. Um, and that's that's going to be really exciting. I can't wait. You know, it'll be five or six years before the benefits of that come through, but the event, the first event will be really special. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier the night of the March 8th, the T20 World Cup final. 
what was it like for you as a former former player and legend of the game sitting in the stands? Like what were your emotions like and what was going through your mind when you saw those people just piling in? Oh, well, I was, I was busy for the first part of it because I'm on the T20 World Cup board. So I, I had some responsibility that I was starting from one function to the next to just to sort of talk to people or to do things. Uh, and then it was in about the fifth or sixth over that I got a chance to sit down and um, and people were still asking me to do things. At that point, I said, no, I'm not doing any more. I'm just going to watch this game. This Good. is a lifetime opportunity. And um, the moment that sticks in my mind was when um, everyone put their, their torches on their iPhone and lit up the stadium. And I'd seen that happen on Anzac Day, um, a football match, but I hadn't seen it happen at any other event. And I just thought, wow. Um, this is really special. Were you out on the ground when they did like a guard of honour or the players ran through? Yeah, yeah, um, I was. It was, um, it was really interesting. Different countries were represented, different eras were represented. Um, everyone knew each other, but they sort of didn't because um, sometimes 20 and 30 years dividing by age. But uh, really good fun and just um, amazing to be part of it um, at that point. And you recently left Cricket Australia to start your own business, the Leadership Playground. Um, can you tell us what the, where the idea came from and, and what you're aiming to do? Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose just reflecting on where crickets come, I just felt like I'd, um, I'd done my bit to help the game sort of push along and it was time to probably best for me and best for the game to get some new and fresh ideas in. And, and I had a, a yearning to make sure that some of the things that I'd learnt um, through my career and then post my uh, playing career that, that young girls would really benefit from knowing that earlier and I, I, I felt like there's things I know now that I wish I knew then so it's simply trying to give um, give young girls some skills and confidence to to step into leadership positions when they when they arise and to sort of shake the world up and you know don't wait for permission and don't wait for others to um, you know to to be providing those opportunities go out and find them and grab them and and um, you know let's let's make sure that we're using all of the capabilities we have so uh, that's that's the idea. I'll work with um, with school groups and community groups, and hopefully one by one, um, make sure girls have got the the skills and the capabilities to to be their best. Sounds super exciting. And on the topic of leadership, do you think uh, in your time as a leader, from a captain to an administrator, do you think your leadership style has changed a lot, or is it more lessons learned along the way? Uh, yeah, no, it's definitely evolved. I, I think um, different situations require different ways of operating and um, it's probably one piece of advice I would give people is just to put yourself in, in positions where it's different and you have to find a way um, and so leading a team at work as opposed to leading a cricket team or leading a, the team performance folks as opposed to the community guys I mean totally different perspectives and um, the leader needs to adjust so whilst you won't, might not change your philosophy or your values um, how you go about it um, obviously will change with the people you're leading. So um, you don't learn leadership by reading books. You learn it by, you know, getting in and, and giving it a go and making mistakes and reflecting and learning. And um, that's the fun part is that you actually never get it right. It's a bit like batting. You never quite master it. And just looking towards the future of the game, we've seen how the how T20s have been instrumental in bringing the women's game into the mainstream through T20 World Cups and the WBBL. One thing we do consistently see the fans asking on social media is why aren't there more tests and when will there be more tests? Where do you see test cricket fitting into the women's game in the future and can it be something that is played by more countries? Uh, I think it comes back to the discussion we are having before about um, making sure that the game's accessible and growing across the globe. Um, my strong feelings are that T20 cricket is still the mechanism to do that. Um, one day cricket 
um, the longer the format of the game, the bigger the difference between um, the, the competing teams and you get lopsided contests. So I, my personal view is that T20 cricket um, still needs to be the vehicle in which to, to navigate the strength of the game across the globe. Um, so that's where I would be putting all my attention, all my efforts, and, um, and that then has to come at a cost. And to me, that cost is probably the longer form of the game. Um, whether that's for five or 10 years or 20 years, I don't know, but the world's getting faster and shorter. So um, I have a sneaking suspicion that that's that's not the way that this will go. This will get shorter and faster and um, more global and um, more accessible. And and um, that means that the women's game has to take advantage of that, not be caught in the slipstream. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. And Belinda, our final question for you. We did love listening to you on the Channel 7 commentary when you joined uh, for this recent Australia New Zealand series. So we just were wondering, is there actually anything that you're not good at? <laughs> like, yeah, it's- Heaps, but I won't tell you uh, what they what they are. Um, no, I um when you work with um when you work with good people, you get made to look good. So that was definitely the case with the commentary. Um, no, you were but, you were keeping them all together. No, not at all. Um, yeah, no, I'm uh, I uh, I'm not good at everything. I can assure you. So um I, I can do a few things. Uh, I'll I'll recognise that, but certainly not everything. That, that, don't make me sing or play the guitar. Okay, okay, we won't. Belinda, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on the Scoop podcast. Our fans are going to absolutely love this. So thank you and all the very best for the Leadership Playground. Thanks very much, guys. Healy's awake. Australia awake. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanny. This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner. Jonathan strikes again. She's on a hat-trick. She comes at Molyneux. Catch is taken by Perry. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.